All right. Well, thank you again for uh, coming out tonight. Uh, I, I'm going to leave somebody out, but I know Mary Beth was involved. Mary Beth helped, I think, with the noodles and Kaylee Blevins with the meat and Holly, and, and I'm sure I'm missing somebody here, but thank, can we just thank them for their work tonight? Well, that, was, that was fantastic, so thank you all so much. And uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to the very first chapter of the Bible. If you were here last week, uh, we began… And we, we are, by the way, going to add a third week on the topic, so this will be the second of three weeks on the LGBTQ plus uh, revolution. And last week, the goal was really to try to understand uh, how the, the world has come to believe what it does about these issues. And so, we kind of looked at the last several hundred years really quickly through Carl Truman's book and uh, the rise and triumph of the modern self, and uh, kind of argued for how a number of ideas coming together have sort of created a milieu where people intuitively feel and think that, um, for instance, either transgenderism or same-sex relationships are just sort of intuitively seem right and good. And so, um, we wanted to sort of explain that, that those intuitions don't come out of thin air. Oftentimes, we don't stop to question why our intuitions are what they are. And so, last week, we were trying to uh, examine uh, the root system of that, kind of what's going on underneath the surface. Today, we are not going to be doing that. Today, we are going to be looking at a different narrative, the biblical narrative on human, uh, on, on marriage, sexu sexuality, um, gender, and to see an alternate um, storyline, an alternate narrative. And what I said last week was oftentimes, with, especially with teenagers that I, that I interact with during the school year, is that they will assent to what the Bible says in their mind, but in their heart, their emotions line up with more the, world, the world's narrative on these issues. And so, the first week was to sort of examine that and to see that, that this is not just self-evident. These things actually come on very questionable premises. And, and so, then this week, we're going to be looking at what Scripture teaches, and we're going to start with as familiar a passage as you can find in the Bible. And so, Greg, can you read for us? This is Genesis 1, 26 to toward the end of the chapter there. Yeah. So, let's read Genesis chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse… 26. I think everybody's there. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And then he moves on to talk to the beasts. Um, so I guess we can pray. I'll start us off and then get going. God, thank you so much for your word. God, we are grateful that you have spoken uh, clearly. God, these issues that we're considering, Lord, in light of your word, they're actually not as difficult um, as they sometimes seem to be. Your word is clear, uh, Lord, but we live in a world and a culture that is seeking to confuse us as much as possible, to twist your word, uh, to make it say things that it doesn't say, uh, to deny clearly sometimes what it teaches, but Lord, we pray for your help in these few moments that the clarity and the power and the, just that your word is life-giving, that that would be at work in our midst. Uh, Lord, may your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts 
Lord, so that we see uh, what your word actually says. And Lord, that our faith would be shaped by what the scriptures teach. Lord, may this time prove to be a time where we are equipped to be on our guard against evil ideas, godless ideas, satanic ideas. Lord, that we might walk the straight and narrow path. Lord, help us remember what Jesus said, that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and few there are who find it, because the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who walk on it. Lord, help us walk that straight and narrow path, which is the path your word lays out before us. And God, even if the culture around us is screaming and pushing and prodding, to go a different way. Lord, give us the grace to stay true to your word no matter what, because that narrow way is the way to life, to joy, to eternal joy, to eternal fellowship with you. And so, Lord, keep us on that path through all that we say and do tonight, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me, let me just, uh, what, what are, so let me ask you guys a question to start off. How is Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 so foundational to everything we're going to be talking about regarding uh, humanity, marriage, sexuality, all that stuff? Why, why is Genesis 1 through 3 so foundational? Um, Genesis 1 through 3 is foundational because obviously being God's Word, um, it's God's perspective, His divine perspective um, on the creation of the world, why we're here. Uh, why we are the way we are, why we're built the way we're built. Um, and so when God speaks about these things, He's giving the authoritative perspective, um, the authoritative um, understanding of humanity in the world. Um, and so we come to Genesis 1, the passage that we started off with. Um, you can look at, again, verses 26, and we'll just make a few comments along here as we go. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God hasn't said this about any other creature that he's made. So there is something incredibly special about humanity, about mankind that God is doing here. In the image of God, after his likeness, and you know, what does that mean? It says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the, the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made mankind unique to be kind of like what's been called his vice regents, like uh, the sub-ruler underneath the, the true ruler who's God. So to be human is to be made to rule over God's creation. Nothing else in creation was given that. Nothing else in creation it bears the stamp of the image of God. Um, and so verse 27 is very interesting to what we're talking about here because we'll see this later. I think we're going to reference Matthew 19. Jesus quotes um, in the issue with divorce, he quotes Genesis chapter 1 affirming that it's true, that it's truth. It's foundational for understanding marriage and relationships. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so I think I've mentioned this before. Our culture has a, an allergic reaction to anything that's masculine. It's like masculine is evil, the, the evil patriarchy that's got to be overthrown. But when you look at how God set things up in his word, it's very clear the generic term for humanity um, is, is man. God created man. That refers to men and women. It encompasses both sexes. Um, and it says, in the image of God, he created him. That's the generic male and female. He created them. So the whole, the, from the very beginning, God's whole purpose was for mankind 
to bear his image in male and female. Both equally bear his image. It's not like man's 50%, women's 50%, or, you know, when, when sin comes in, you know, some people think, well, men are more, or when women less image of God. No, both fully bear the image of God, but when God made his image, he made male and female. That is how God himself set it up. And the reason that matters is this is God's design. This is how God made it. And, and in this part, God says at the end, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So God's assessment of his creation, male and female, mankind ruling over the earth is very good. So God says that's a good thing for man to be male and female. There's biological realities at work here, um, male and female. Your chromosomes don't lie. Um, I wish we had more time to go into that, but um, you are the way God made you to be. You, if you are a, a female, you are a female because God made you that way. If you are a male, it is because God made you that way. These are, these are undeniable biological realities, but it's according to what God himself wanted. And it matters that we understand it that way because our culture is assaulting the very thing God himself set up. Do y'all have some thoughts on that? Well, that's good. J- J- I think Greg hit on it, but um, I, I think the super sad part about it, especially as we talk about homosexuality tonight from Romans 1, uh, is that man is the only one that bears God's image, but yet is only the only one that's rebelling against God. Everybody else, every other created thing is doing exactly what they were created for. And yet we're going off the rails trying to do our own thing, um, even though God gives, gave us that you know, huge, great privilege. And so it, it just makes, I think, the whole part when we get to Romans 1 even more sad mm-hmm. to, to yeah. think about our, where our world has gone. Let's look at the tail end of, of Genesis 2. Yeah. <clears throat> In Genesis chapter 2, you look down at verse uh, 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." So here again, you also see that God has made us male and female. This is good, just like He made the, the, the sun and the moon. He made the dry land and the sea. Uh, I think G.K. Chesterton said, you know, only a fool would try to say which one's better. You know, we, we, God has made all these things glorious, but He also made us male and female. He, he made us compliments of one another. And for Adam, uh, God did not create another man. God did also, He did not create uh, a, num- a bunch of women. Polygamy was not God's design, even though in the Old Testament, a number of people did disobey God by practicing polygamy. And if you read that, you'll notice that it, it causes destruction. Guess how many times? 100%. 100% of the time you see polygamy in the Bible, there is going to be drama and problems that come from that very thing. That's a distortion of God's original design. But what you see in the original design, and this is where Paul, when he wants the blueprint for men and women in marriage, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. When Jesus wants the blueprint, he goes back. In Matthew 19, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. This is the blueprint. And so before sin, God's design was one man and one woman 
in a lifelong covenant commitment of marriage. It is exclusive. It is lifelong. Uh, it, is, it is infidelity to one another. And within that, there is the sexual bond, the, the becoming one flesh, which, in, which is an, a covenantal type thing that they're bound together, but then it is expressed uh, consummately through their, through their act together where children are then born, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. So, uh, you see from the very beginning, God is saying this is very good, the way that He has made things, and uh, that, is his, that is His design. Anything on that? Yeah, we, we want to make sure we stress too, this is like the foundation for like society right here. You know, you've heard it said, and, and it's, it's sad when I hear this coming from professing Christians, talking about we're making an idol out of the family. Well, God made the family here. This is the basic building block for human society. Like before anything is done, God establishes the institution of marriage between a man and a woman, and in that context, children come. That is the basic building block for society. So if humanity is going to fulfill God's command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion, it's going to be based on the unit of the family, okay? Keep that in mind because so much of what we're seeing in our culture today and even people in the church who, who you know, on, on the right day, they would affirm everything we're saying, but they're saying, oh, you're just emphasizing the family too much. You can't overemphasize the family. God designed it to be the basic building block of human society. So if humanity is to flourish, if humanity is to succeed in its calling in any way, it's got to stick to the pattern and design that God gave. And as Mark was saying, anytime there is a deviation from what we're seeing here, it leads to trouble, it leads to heartache, it leads to coveting, it leads to, to enmity, strife, and all sorts of wicked things. And so this is the foundation um, for humanity in the world. To go against this is to go against God Himself, is to rail against God Himself and say, we know better than God does. And that's part of the problem um, that we see. You know, we've mentioned Marxism and all that stuff, but a lot of this flows out of, um, out of Marx's way of thinking because he hated the nuclear family. He hated a husband and a wife together forever raising their children. He saw that as one of the ultimate signs of oppression that had to be overthrown. And so we see people today taking that type of language on their lips, speaking in those ways, saying we've got to do away with the family. Because once you do away with the husband-wife relationship, a man and a woman biologically together, once you do away with that, anything literally goes. Why is it that sexuality of all things is the, the, the linchpin issue right now? Because if, we can, if, if our culture can destroy this and go away from what God set up, then it can do whatever it wants to. It can redefine everything. But if this holds, it is, it's amazing when you have strong families, when you have a strong understanding of the family, you have strong families based on that understanding, society tends to hold off and stave off the wickedness that otherwise would come in. And that's why as the family has been undermined, we see all this other stuff rising up. There's not an accident. It's not incidental. It's not, you know, just some coincidence. As God's design for the family is attacked and devalued, sin tends to reign more freely. That's good. All right, let's turn to Matthew 19 in the New Testament that we mentioned a moment ago. Matthew chapter 19.
And uh, we won't read the whole passage, we'll just read the relevant part to what we are discussing tonight. So, Matthew 19, just read a few verses here, starting in verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no, one se- let no man separate. Well, you see here, confirming what Greg just said, Jesus is speaking of the family. You've got male and female. So, from the beginning, God made us male and female. So, so okay, let's just pause to reference last week. With just take the T in LGBT, take the transgender movement, the argument there would be God has not trans, uh, trans, uh, I don't want to use transcendental meditation, transcendently, that's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) There'll be some heresy. So God has not uh, given us a transcendent law concerning uh, humanity, gender, all that stuff. That would be their argument. And so once you've cut the cord from who God is, their argument would be what? Well, we just kind of determine things for ourselves. We're cut off from any kind of higher overarching purpose. But in the biblical narrative, a good God has made us from the beginning male and female, which means whether I am male is determined by how God made me. It's not determined on how I may think I feel about how, myself, which would be the argument today that it's a psychological thing, that it's how I feel about myself. No, 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 it's biologically, physically how I've been made. Uh, again, verse 4, have you not read that He, God, who created them from the beginning, referencing Genesis 1 and 2 clearly, made them, that's Adam and Eve, male and female, he made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, there's the family, and hold fast to his wife, there's a new family uh, starting, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man uh, separate. So Jesus is clearly infirming Genesis 1 and 2 is literally true, and that, that there is male and female, and that's what marriage actually is, and that's how the two become one flesh. So, thoughts about how that sheds further light? Well, I think um, we're going to get into objections. I know one that is mentioned is the question, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Yeah. Okay, if we go there now. Yeah, let's, let's talk um, about that. And, uh, you know, you, you look, you don't, you won't find Jesus like specifically using the term or referencing male to male or female to female like relationships. And so people say, aha, we got you. See, if it were so important, Jesus would have talked about it. But what that does actually is it betrays a misunderstanding of the unity of the Bible and who Jesus actually is. Keep in mind, Jesus is the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, He's Yahweh, Jehovah, from the Old Testament. So what does that mean? When God was pronouncing these things in Genesis and in other places, um, guess what? That means that Jesus was God with the Father and the Spirit saying, this is what it should be and these things are evil. So to say Jesus never talks about it in one sense is to deny that Jesus is the Son of God, to deny that He is divine, is to deny that he's, he, he has a claim to divinity. And it's that right there should trouble us um, to, no, to no end. Because, let me just say yeah, this. That, that would be putting Jesus against mm-hmm. other Holy Spirit-inspired writers of the yeah. Bible. So, so we have to, you'd have to first of all say Jesus actually disagrees with the Holy Spirit. So G- G- what the Holy Spirit-inspired, what we'll look at in Romans 1, Jesus would have to say disagrees with Paul. 
His chosen apostle, the one that Jesus handpicked to go about and do good, and He gave the Spirit to so that He could write uh, eventually letters of the New Testament. Jesus is actually opposed to what His own chosen apostle is writing. Well, that, you're, you're going to have a breakdown about the very nature of God, the very nature of Scripture. Uh, if, if we're affirming the biblical truth of biblical inerrancy, which we believe, then within the biblical storyline, to say Jesus has nothing to do with or never talks about or in no way is connected to the topic of homosexuality or sexual immorality is false just on that point alone. So, keep, keep going, yeah. Greg. So, another, another aspect on that. Um, one, Jesus, in, in the, the context of first century Israel, homosexuality wasn't a debate. Like, they weren't debating whether or not it was right and God said it was okay. It was a given that it was sinful. Um, if they were still, you know, regardless of how you take John 8, um, you know, or whatever, with the, you know, Jesus and the, the adulterous woman they brought to him, like, they still took some sins very seriously. And so, if they're willing to stone somebody for adultery, then guess what? They would stone somebody for homosexuality too. Um, so, that's another line. Jesus doesn't have to address it specifically because it wasn't even an issue for debate. So, that's taking an agenda from outside Scripture and saying, well, if, if, if Jesus is going to be against it, then He has to specifically say something well, no, he doesn't, because that wasn't an issue that was being debated in his time. An example would be Jesus never explicitly condemns rape. Therefore, is he for that? Jesus never explicitly condemns uh, sexual child abuse. Explicitly. Or bestiality. Or bestiality. They, all, all, these are sins explicitly condemned in Leviticus, and they're explicitly condemned in other mm -hmm. parts of the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 5 and other places. But Jesus never explicitly condemns a whole host of things that He clearly believed were wrong. Yeah. But just we don't have an exhaustive list of everything Jesus ever taught on every moral issue in the four Gospels. It is very selective. And again, that, because that was not a debate of the day, uh, it wasn't something that He felt necessary yeah. to address explicitly. But He, didn't, he did address it uh, uh, implicitly when He uses the word uh, uh, sexual morality there's a lot of examples, but just Matthew, Mark 7, you mentioned this one, uh, Jerry, last week. Um, it's, uh, Jesus says, what comes from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, the Greek word porneia. That word, porneia, sexual immorality, is a broad term uh, used in that time period. And guess what? It refers to all sexual lust and behavior that is not between a man and a woman in the context of lifelong marriage. So, any, anything, just, just anything you can think of, any sexual, uh, sexually immoral act or, or thought you can imagine that is not between a husband and wife in the context of marriage in a loving relationship, that is porneia, that's sexual morality. So, you know, it's kind of like saying, if I said all my seniors passed the test, I didn't name, you know, I didn't name David, you know, but did I, impl did I say something about David? Yeah, I didn't say his name, but I did say all my seniors passed the test, which includes David, right? So, David also passed the test. When Jesus condemns all sexual immorality, He didn't explicitly name all 200 different sins you could imagine, but guess what? All of them are included. If it's not a man and a woman in the lifelong context of a faithful marriage, it's porneia, it's sexual morality. So, Jesus does actually mention homosexuality right there in, in Mark 7, 21, along with adultery, along with premarital sex, along with anything you can imagine. Just it would be all included in that, uh, and Jesus would be in, in agreement with what Paul would later write on these same issues. Yeah, because all Scripture is equally inspired. It's mm. the red letters aren't any more inspired or less inspired than the rest Amen of Scripture. Amen Well, I think, too, also remember, I mean, here, even here in Matthew 19 that we're looking at, the simple fact that he quotes Genesis the way he does, and it's only applied in the context of men and women being divorced and married, like, again, the boundaries of how he's using the Old Testament are very narrow. Like, it's not like it's, it's open for all this other stuff. Um, if it were an issue, I think we would have seen more of it. 
and it just wasn't um, in his context. So let me just add another point here. So very often you'll hear people say, I've even, I've heard numerous people say that, you know, there's only a handful of passages in the whole Bible that explicitly mention or, or say anything about homosexuality explicitly, which is pretty close to accurate, although I think the list is longer than most people think it is. I think it's actually about three times longer than most people think it is. But people say it's a very short list. You'll often hear people say there's only six passages or only five passages. It's actually much more than five. But they'll, they'll say it's just a handful that really mention this. They'll mention a couple in Leviticus, which we plan to get to next Sunday or next Thursday, and then they'll mention Romans. Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy and a few of those. And the uh, first thing I would like to say, and this is in a, in a loving conversation, in a gracious way, I would want to point out, I, none of those verses need to be in the Bible for the Bible to be explicitly clear on, on homosexuality along with premarital sex and adultery and all these other things. I, I don't need any explicit text on the topic for the Bible to be perfectly clear because here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that marriage, you just go look at your Bible, read it from cover to cover, marriage who is in a marital relationship? It is a man and a woman. Now, you say, what about polygamy? Well, listen, polygamy was never God's intention. It was always wrong. You can go look at Deuteronomy when it says the king should not inquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be led astray. You can look at Solomon who acquires hundreds of wives and concubines, and guess what? That was his downfall. He was led astray by that. You can look at David. Uh, he had many issues with sexual morality, but one of them was this very issue. I mean, th th this, is, this is an abundantly bad thing throughout the Bible, but here's what you see. Marriage, even in polygamy, is always between a man and a woman. <laughs> Even then, a man may be marrying multiple women, which is not right, but it's all, a marriage is, by definition, a man entering into a covenant with a woman. Now, a polygamy breaks the exclusive nature, which is therefore wrong. That's, you're not supposed to do that. But marital, marital relationships, by definition, are a man, and a, a man and his wife. Now, in the Bible, sexual morality, it is crystal clear, again, from the cover to the cover, from, across your whole Bible, Sexuality is God's blessing within the marriage between a man and a woman. So you read the book of Song of Solomon, the whole book, what is it, eight chapters, something like that, is celebrating romantic love between a husband and a wife. And it's not polygamous, right? Even if Solomon, you know, Solomon behind that uh, is, is speaking better than he lived, right? You've got one man, one woman falling in love, deeply in love with each other, enjoying each other, delighting in each other. God is unembarrassed by that topic. God put a whole book in the Bible to celebrate the romantic love between a husband and a wife. If you look at Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7 uh, and multiple places, but especially Proverbs 5, you know, it, it celebrates the, the joy between a husband and a wife in romantic love in a way that it's not supposed to be spread abroad in the streets. It's not supposed to be given to the adulterous woman. It's not, you know, you'll be reduced to a loaf of bread. You'll be taken down to Sheol. You'll, you'll be led like a, like a lamb to the slaughter if you enter into the adulterous uh, house. So clearly, sexuality is meant as that one flesh union between a husband and a wife. So, if the Bible said nothing other than that, we have all we need to know about human sexuality. We got all we need to know. No explicit verse about adultery, but you know it's wrong. No explicit verse about premarital sex, but think about, well, I'm jumping ahead here, but just for a moment, with, with, with premarital sex, sometimes people, especially younger people, will say, you know, what, what's so bad about it? I don't get why Christians are such prudes about this topic. You know, why? I mean, what's the big deal? Why is it such a big deal? And um, first of all, I'll just start by saying the world has a devalued view of sexuality when it uses arguments like that. Why is it such a big deal? It means you have a low view of what sexuality actually is. God has actually a more elevated, a higher view of sexuality, which is why it's not something to be thrown around in the street, like Proverbs 5 actually says that. So, so what, what's going on? In, in, in the actual act of, of that union, you are saying through your, through your physical act, all that I am and all that I have is for you, and all that you are and all that you have is for me. It is a complete commitment of oneself to another and that person to you. That's what that act says. Now, just like, you know, someone could say it doesn't mean anything more than that, but that's a, that's a lie whether we know it or not. It's a lie because, you know, I heard one author say, if, if, I, uh, if I'm strangling you, 
with my, I got my thumbs right around the middle of your throat and I'm pushing in and I say, I want you to live. My words are contradicting my actions, okay, for a dramatic illustration, right? Just because you say, I want you to live, if I'm actually choking you, my actions are more important than my words in that moment, are they not? They're saying, I don't really want you to live. And I would say that the actual physical act of intimacy between a man and a woman is saying something profound about you and them, and you're really saying, all that I am is yours, all that you are is mine. Uh, as 1 Corinthians 7 says, a wife does not have authority over her body, but her husband does, and a husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does, and you should give one another to each other. The Bible is unembarrassed by this topic. I think we sometimes as Christians get embarrassed about the topic, which actually hurts young people as they try to understand what the Bible actually teaches about this. God is not embarrassed by this topic. He teaches about it with no embarrassment throughout Scripture, and we shouldn't be embarrassed about the topic either. But what, 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 when, when a boyfriend and girlfriend or when they sleep together, a one-night stand happens from a bar, you know, two people get drunk, they go home and they sleep together. When, when that is happening, you are, with your physical act, saying something that is a lie. Because you are saying with your, just like with the, the hands are on the throat says, I want you to die, <laughs> no matter what your words say, the physical act of intimacy is saying, I'm giving myself fully to you, including all that I am in my future. It's all, it's all to you, till death do us part. That's what you are saying by that act. But my guess is, you know, well, I, what I know is, if you're a boyfriend and girlfriend, you haven't actually given yourself to that person. You're lying. If you've given yourself, then get married. Go get married tomorrow. And then you can, you can enjoy that in marriage. But you're saying, I'm actually not promising my future to you. I'm not. I'm not giving myself totally to you financially, right? We're separate bank accounts. We got separate lives. I have not promised my future to you. No, no, no. I'm just, I, I am, I'm really using you for the emotional or physical high that this gives me, and I'm really making you into an object, whether you're a man or a woman. I'm using you for my personal pleasure at your expense and at my expense, but I'm not really prepared to devote all that I am and all that my future is and all that I've got to you. No, no, it's the complete, like financially you're, you're one. Your, your futures are one. Your lives are one. You, you are all together, and that act belongs in that context. Uh, Randy Alcorn has said, a fire is wonderful, so long as it's a winter night and the fire is in the fireplace. When the fire is where it was designed to be, it is a wonderful thing that gives life to the whole house. But if somebody, without paying attention, knocks one of the burning you know, pieces of wood onto the uh, carpet in the living room, we've got trouble, right? So what sex was designed for is wonderful in its context, but taken out of its context, it lies and does things that are destructive that it was never intended by God to, to do in the first place. Wow, yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, and we can see how destructive it is. Yeah. You know, you can certainly look to say there was one design, and when we hold to that, it is a beautiful, great thing. And when we don't, it's destructive, like all sin. Sin 100% of the time is destructive, and that, uh, maybe even more than about any, um, leads to great heartache and, and pain. Well, I think, too, in light of what you're saying, we need to, we need to, be equipped to think a certain way because I've heard this from some of the students that I have in my classes. They're like, and I mean, they, these are folks who want to submit to Scripture. It's not like they have an agenda to go against it, but it's like, well, what is it hurting people? Nobody's being harmed by, you know, folks engaging in extramarital sex or homosexuality um, because we, again, we are so shaped by an evolutionary mindset that we really are just matter. Like, that's all we are. We're just physical beings. There's no spiritual component. There's no true morality, right and wrong. Um, and if we're thinking biblically, then we understand we're more than just the substance that we feel. We're body and soul. It's not one more important than the other. 
but we're so shaped by that way of thinking that we say, well, if there's not actual physical harm being done, then it must be okay. And we, we don't even have a category today. I mean, as Christians, we should. And I think, you know, folks in here, our church, we have this, but we need to be aware. A lot of people don't. Um, we need to push them, people to think, listen, there is another type of harm than just physical harm. There's spiritual and moral harm. And if you affirm somebody in a path that is wicked and evil in God's sight, you are harming them even if physically they seem to be thriving. You can be the healthiest physically uh, speaking person in the world and be the most harmed person in the world if you are living your life um, according to an idea or a way of thinking that goes contrary to what God has said in his word. So there is such a thing as moral harm that's being done. It's just not as easily visible, um, but we've got to help people bust out of that way of thinking, well, physically nothing's wrong. They're not being hurt, so it must be okay. No, like it's really bad if someone is physically okay, but morally and spiritually twisted in thinking that the way they live and who they hook up with um, is okay when in reality it's not. That's a really bad thing as well. Just j- jumping in there, um, so here's an argument that's not necessarily using the Bible. This is something you could think about with a non-Christian friend. You could mention this. You know, it's interesting that a sign in God's natural world, and we'll get to this in a moment in Romans 1, a sign in the natural world that God did make human sexuality to be a lifelong commitment between a husband and a wife, you know, is, is there, yes, the Bible is the ultimate place to go, but is there anything just in the natural ordering of things in the world that shows that that's also the case, which I think Paul hints at in Romans 1. And, and I think, here's, not to be funny here, but just, let's just think here, okay. So, you know, it's clear that we've got, we've got eyes to see, we've got ears to hear, you know, you've got your heart to pump blood. Uh, one author says, you know, you've got your, your, you know you, you've got your lungs to breathe in oxygen to keep you going, to keep you living. He said, well, one author said, when I was a kid, I used to hear about the, the male reproductive system and the, the female reproductive system in, in high school. He said, well, actually, that's not quite right because no man has a complete reproductive system. You know, you, you have a complete cardiovascular system. You have a complete, all your systems are complete in you. You can breathe on your own. Your heart can pump blood on, on its own if you're healthy. You can see on your own. You can hear on your own. You don't need someone else to do those things unless you've got some, some kind of physical issue at the time. But with the reproductive system, you cannot reproduce on your own. Some animals, some things can, so, you know, we, we cannot. God, so there's, a, there's an inherent design that is clear just in the way God made us that male and female are necessary for one reproductive system. You have to have a man and a woman for one reproductive system because they both have half, if you want to say it that way, of a re- it's really 98% to 2%, really. We're being honest, the women do a lot more of that. But anyways, you, you've got two, re- two together who have to create the reproductive system. And then listen, here's the thing. Unless something gets in the way, you know, unless something hinders it, the natural byproduct of the sexual union nine months later shows up. Let's just think for a second, right? The, the, the eyes are for seeing. The sexual reproductive system is for producing new human beings. That's the ultimate purpose of it, which is so obvious. You don't need to be a Bible-believing person to see, obviously, this is why this exists. And so uh, the, the, the union is clearly supposed to be between a man and a woman because that's how the reproductive system actually works. Two men cannot reproduce, and two women cannot reproduce. A, a man and a woman are meant to reproduce, which is clear indication in nature that that's what it was intended for. And the very fact that unless something hinders, a child comes along in nine months, well, really, soon after a child comes along in conception, and then the child is born nine months later. Well, guess what a child needs? Even secular people would tell you, yeah, if we're being honest, children do much better with a mother and a father. Okay? So, okay, so a lifelong human being is the product of the sexual union. 
a lifelong human being who is really a genetic combination of the mother, a female, and the father, a male. And the reproductive system only works with the two sexes being there together. So clearly, whoever designed this system wanted a man and a woman who could potentially be lifelong mother and father to a lifelong human being who would be born as a result of that union. Now, I know today with, 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 with contraceptives and things like that, and the pill and all kinds of things, we have ways of sort of intervening there. And there might be physical reasons why someone cannot give birth. I understand that. But what I'm saying is, don't, don't let that fog the issue. The way this was designed was to create new human beings that last forever. And since children do better with a mother and a father, lifelong, uh, you can see indicators just in the way God made the world, that this is the intention of this. This was designed wonderfully, beautifully by God for a purpose, which was a man and a wife join in a lifelong commitment just to each other. That commitment creates children. And those children need a stable environment of a mother and a father because if we're being politically incorrect, fathers are better at protection and mothers are better at nurture. Let's just be honest, okay? That's just the way it is. Fathers are better at protection. Mothers are better at nurture. There is something, you know, if, if you hear that a three-year-old was wrestling on the living room floor with one of its parents, guess which parent it probably was? It was probably the dad, right? I mean, you, you, there's certain things that are just common sense that, that both parents have indispensable contributions to make to that child as that child develops and grows. And so it is so obvious just from nature, just from the way things are, it doesn't take you know, a rocket scientist to look at this and go, well, this is clearly the intention. Man and woman, lifelong commitment with sexuality that produces children, a stable environment for them to, to, be, to, be, to be growing and, and developing. That's clear. Through God's design, I think that's what Paul's going to get at in Romans 1. That's exactly what he's saying in Romans 1. And that's where um, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. And Can yet, we turn there? Absolutely. Well, let's, let's turn to Romans, Romans chapter 1. And then let's stay in Romans for the next six years. <laughs> we can just start right here and keep going. Can you read the extended? Yeah, what a great passage, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, right and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in which things have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts we're darkened. You guys want to take a shot at some of those things there? From 19, um, yeah, they're truth suppressors, the, the unbeliever here. They're suppressing the truth that God has made plain to them. I think just what you're saying there, Mark. Well, I follow, the, I mean, follow the logic here. I mean, first, start off with the very first phrase, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God's wrath is God's anger against sinners and sin. Um, and so whatever is about to be talked about is bringing about God's right anger, okay? And you don't want God's anger. Like, that's a bad thing for us if God is angry with us, okay? So whatever is going to follow from this is not something we should promote, nothing, not something we should pursue. So what is he angry about? What is, what is roused the wrath of God based on what Paul says um, against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Um, so ungodliness, unrighteousness is arousing the wrath of God. What is it that's being done? By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They hold it down. They hinder it. They don't want it to be clear. Um, so God's angry because there's truth that humankind, that mankind is holding down, that mankind is denying, that mankind is hindering. 
from being clear. And he goes on in verse 19, says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. So what they are suppressing is not something that's difficult to understand. Like this is what's so crucial about Romans 1 here and the logic yeah. of what Paul's saying. It's not like the, the, this knowledge of God in the creation is somehow hard to get to. Mm-hmm. It's plain. Like that's what Paul says. He, God has made it plain to them. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So he is rightfully angry because men are taking this very clear, very plain revelation from God to us in his creation and they're holding it down. They're denying it. They're, 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 put it, they're suppressing it. And what is this truth? Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. So those two things, just stop right there. We should be able to look at the creation that God has made and see that there's a creator who has eternal power, and he is not like the creation that he made. So we should be able to distinguish and say, okay, whoever made this isn't like this. He's other than this. He's got to be bigger. He's got to be stronger. He's got to live longer. Like we should be able to deduce some very basic understanding understandings about God. He is all powerful to be able to make all that we see. We look up all the stars. Somebody had to make this. And again, what does he say? Uh, verse 20, these have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And that's why he says, so they are without excuse. People who, the, people who deny God do not have a legit excuse for their denial. Now, they're going to say, well, I, because of this, because so they'll make excuses, but that doesn't mean their excuses are legit. That's what Paul's talking. You don't have a real excuse that holds up. God has shown himself clearly, clearly um, in the things that he has made. And mankind still rejects it. An example of that would be, I, I quote this sometimes, uh, Richard Dawkins, who I'm sure you've heard of. He's one of the most famous atheists uh, on earth. He's, uh, he's probably in his late 70s now, but uh, biologist. So it, it, opening sentence of one of his books, I'm forgetting which one it was, but his opening sentence was, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Let me say that again, because he doesn't think they were designed for a purpose. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of being designed for a purpose. Like your eye looks like it was made for seeing. I mean, it just does. I mean, just it's amazing. It just it seems like it readjusts focus, what, 10,000 times a day or whatever the number is. I mean, it looks like your, your eyeball was brilliantly designed for seeing, but it was actually the random accident of random mutation and natural selection over a long, long, long period of time, and your brain has accidental appearance of purpose, but it's not really there. That is him taking a beach ball and trying to hold it underwater. He's suppressing the truth. He says, it, he says the eye has the appearance of having been designed by a purpose. That's his own words. It looks like the world was really brilliantly designed, but we, got, we know that, no, 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 Darwin helped us see that there's a way to explain the whole natural world without any designer, without any ultimate purpose. It just happened. It just happened. Random mutation, natural selection explains everything. And he is holding, with, with his elbows are trembling, he's holding a beach ball under the water. He's suppressing what is so obvious that a child can understand it. I mean, a child can look at a chair and say, that didn't just happen, that was designed. And we're supposed to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, that did just happen. I'm not designed. I mean, how crazy? You, know, you look at a chair, you're like, only a crazy person would think that wasn't intentionally made intelligently. And then we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm an accident. We know better. I mean, we, we know better. I don't care how sophisticated the PhD is who's writing the paper against that position. He knows. He is suppressing obvious design in nature. And he's trying to use Darwin as an excuse to hold that beach ball down. But all you got to do is kind of like tickle the, you know, just tickle him a little bit in the arm and it just pops right up. I mean, it doesn't take much for someone to go, okay, yeah, this does look like this was, this was designed. 
And, they, and that's in 21. They know God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now just pause there, Jerry. Yeah. Just, just as you're reading that, I was looking at a, a couple books we're showing. Paul is deliberately borrowing the language of Genesis 1 here. So he uses all the same language. He uses the word likeness. He uses the, the kind of unique word for male and female in a second. He uses the word animals. He uses the word birds, creeping things. This, you, know, you have dominion over the birds, the animals, the creeping things. Same exact Greek language from the Greek translation. So Paul is, Genesis 1 is just screaming out of this text. Genesis 2, is, Paul is using the actual vocabulary of the Greek translation of Genesis 1 and 2. Deliberately and repeatedly, he wants us to think back. He just mentioned it, the creator, the, since the creation. Paul's got Genesis 1 and 2 on his mind. You say, why does that matter? Because of where he's about to go, it really matters. So with 24. 24, therefore, God gave them up. And this is the first of uh, three in 24, 26, 28. God gave them up in their lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged, once again, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever, um, who is blessed forever. Amen. Any comments on, um, on that so far? Should we read 26 and 27 yet? Okay. To, um, for this reason, God gave them up uh, to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Can we just make a comment on, I mean, it seems obvious when, you, when, you, when I say this, it should be obvious. Um, in light of what Mark was saying about how Genesis 1 and 2 is screaming at us through this text, Paul is steeped in the, 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 the language, he's steeped in the, the ideas of Genesis 1 and 2. There is a natural way, and anything that's not natural is unnatural. Okay, the reason I'm stressing that, because Paul is saying women gave up natural relations for those contrary to nature. Men did the same thing. And so, again, it is unnatural to go against the God's created design. That is natural. Men and women together in marriage. Anything other than that is actually unnatural. Okay, that's offensive in our world today because the world is saying, no, same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage, whatever, that actually should be natural. When in reality, it is unnatural. And again, we're just saying what the text says. That's not trying to, to force anything in it. That's just drawing from what the text itself says. It is unnatural to engage in any kind of sexual relationship that is different from what God created. And I think that gets back, Mark, to what you were saying. Even if the Bible didn't actually, like, we didn't, we didn't have all these verses we could go to, we could still easily make the case. It's because, okay, God said it. That's the way it should be. That's natural. That's, that's good. Anything other than that is unnatural and bad. I mean, we, we think about that in so many other ways in our lives, but when it comes to this issue in our culture today, it's just like that's thrown, that reasoning is thrown out the window. But yeah, so homosexuality, lesbianism, anything that is different than one man, one woman in marriage, in the covenant of marriage forever is unnatural. And then look at what he says, because th this is the thing, like, it's not like they, they do this and then God gives them up. 
No, Mm -hmm. this is the evidence that they've already been given over to this. That is what is so scary about this. When, 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 when humanity and society starts to, to in, um, embrace um, unnatural relationships, that is a sign that that group of people, however big or small, has already exchanged God's truth for a lie. This is God's um, judicial hardening, in a sense. This is God in his wrath saying, if you are not going to follow me, if you're going to reject the way I've made things and you're going to reject me, this is what I'm going to give you over to. Because that's what he says. They receive within themselves the due penalty for their error. What is that penalty? I think it's being hardened in that sin to the point where they don't care. It's hardened to the point where they don't care. Um, and again, it's shameless. We should feel shame when we go against God's design, but now there's no shame. And in our culture today and in the Western culture, it's not just, you know, it's not just approved by some people. It's celebrated out in the open. Things that people, you know, Pride Month. I mean, one, if you like seven deadly sins, that's one of the seven. But pride is sin. And they, they, they celebrate pride using a symbol that, said God, that God gave saying, I'm not going to destroy the world uh, by a flood again. So that, that sign of the rainbow is a promise from God that he's not going to destroy the world again by a flood because of its sin. But it's not saying that humanity is not sinful. Like it's a reminder that, yeah, we deserve to be wiped out and God showed mercy. And so the very fact that, that this, there's no shame for people today, we're, we're, we're distorting this covenant sign that God gave to all humanity, and, and we're shamelessly parading ourselves in the streets, celebrating what is unnatural in God's eyes. And that's a sign that we're already given over to that. That's the scary part for me, is this, it's not like, well, wrath is coming. No, that's the sign that wrath's already here. And that's why I think, you know, taking this out, we need to pray for a a miraculous mercy of God in the U.S. and in the Western world because it is losing its mind on this. It is losing its mind um, on these things. And yeah, um, we can talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. We can talk about um, other stuff like that. What happens to societies that engage in unrepentant, especially sexual immorality? The judgment of God comes. I don't say that with any joy. But like where our society is heading because of its shamelessness on this, it doesn't even blush anymore. I think God said that of Israel. They stopped, she even stopped blushing in her sin. There, it's just, we're celebrating these things that should cause us to hang our head in shame and beg God to, to change us, to forgive us, and to cleanse us. And our society is what Paul says. They're doing these shameless things and they're doing it publicly. A couple, uh, a couple of uh, responses people will sometimes give on this passage to try to turn the meaning upside down. Uh, in Rome, it was common, and this is documented, that there was pederasty, which is adult men uh, sexually abusing younger boys, which that happened a lot in ancient Rome. It's pretty, it's pretty despicable. But So people will say Paul is simply condemning pederasty. He's condemning uh, adult men abusing younger boys. Now, clearly Paul is including that. But Paul does not say, there's actually the Greek word is, I think, pederasty. It's the same word. Paul, he could have used the word. He doesn't use the word. Instead, Paul says, the, the word for man here, arsenes, he says arsenes in arsenes. He uses the same word twice, men with men. 
He doesn't say men with boys, which he could have easily said. He could have, he could have used different terms. And instead, Paul is lumping in every form of homosexual behavior you can imagine. He deals with female homosexuality and male homosexuality. This is the only mention of lesbianism explicitly in the, in the Bible. And then he says men with men. So he, he is including all forms. And people will sometimes say, well, natural here does not mean against the Genesis 1 and 2 male-female nature, like we have a male nature, a female. No, no, no. Against nature means against their, their sexual orientation. So that some people, have, and I've got documents, I mean, I can quote people who say this right here. Uh, some people have said, Paul's talking about people who have a heterosexual orientation who are acting against their nature and acting as homosexuals. And I, I'm sorry, um, that, uh, I think an honest reading of this passage will clearly show you that's not what Paul is saying. It, the background is clearly Genesis 1 and 2. And let me, on that point about they don't have a, they don't have a, they have the wrong orientation. Just look at the wording again of Paul. I'm going to read the verses one more time, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That doesn't sound like a heterosexual orientation, does it? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That doesn't sound like a heterosexual orientation, does it? Men with men, committing shameless acts and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So, Clearly, Paul is talking about men who have a sexual desire for one another, which does not sound like heterosexual orientation by the modern usage of that terminology. And there are, there are other ways that people try to get around this. And, and my favorite quote in this whole thing, there's, I have a debate book that I had to read in college called Two Views on Homosexuality in the Bible. Uh, Robert Gagnon is a wonderful author. In fact, he wrote the best big conservative book on the topic, this beast on, uh, called The Bible and Homosexual Practice. He has 73 pages just on these two verses in Romans 1, and when you are done reading them, you're like, okay, case closed. It is not a question. I mean, I read, I, you can go look at them. They're, it's an overpowering argument on Romans 1. But he is debating a guy named Dan Via in this book, and Dan Via is more of a liberal perspective. And my favorite part in the book, I, I highlighted this, or I underlined this, I don't know when, some point in the past. But th th this quote, best quote in the whole book. Dan Via, who's on the liberal side, says in his response to Robert Gagnon, now this guy is in favor of same-sex relationships, and he, th he thinks it's based in the Bible. This is what he said. Professor Gagnon and I are in substantial agreement that the biblical text that deals specifically with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. That's the guy arguing for it. He says, yeah, we're, we both agree. Like, the debate book is over. Like, we both agree the Bible universally condemns homosexual practice. I just think that you can change the rules now that we better understand homosexual orientation. That's his argument. So, he says, yeah, no question. Leviticus condemns it. Genesis condemns it. Paul condemns it. Jesus implicitly condemns it. There's no question. I mean, just both Testaments all the way across the board. There's no question. Every text that talks about homosexuality condemns it unconditionally. He says, but I think we can still practice same-sex committed monogamous relationships because the principle of love overpowers these outdated principles of morality. Welcome to progressive Christianity. If that is how you want to think, I just like, I have a hard time even talking to that person. Like, I don't know what to say. So, you agree the Bible universally condemns homosexual practice? Yes. No question about it. Okay, well, so we agree. It's wrong. No, I think it's right. Okay. I don't know where to go from there. At that point, I'm just like, all right, I agree with your first statement. Can't go with you with the second statement. The logic just does not work. You remember last week when Mark was uh, talking to us about how people are concerned about their feelings. That's what they're really, they're, it's all about what I feel right here. And so we can say, if we are going to love the world, if we are going to love those who uh, don't believe Scripture here and don't follow Scripture, we need to be concerned about the wrath of God coming on them and less concerned about their feelings. 
And I think it's kind of natural for us to say, oh man, I'm going to hurt their feelings if I talk to them about that. But we're not loving them very well if I'm more concerned about their feelings than about them facing God's wrath. Because that's what, Greg, I think you're right, has started, but that's what's going to continue through eternity in hell unless they repent yeah. and, and put their hope in Christ. And so that's what I think is, for us, if we're thinking about why is this serious, this is serious because of God's wrath right here in, um, in verse 18. Now, l- let me just say a couple of things here before we, we start moving toward a conclusion. L- look, look at the end of the chapter, verse 28 of Romans 1. <clears throat> and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things, which is all these things, deserve to die, which by the way, that's all of us. We're we're all, in verses 28 to 31, everybody's on that list somewhere at some point in our life, right? Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, before this just leaves us in a complete state of hopelessness, because, you know, you, you just, this, is, this is pretty intense. Well, let's look back at, at, at Romans 1, 16 and 17, right before this. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation. Now, just stop right there. The reason why so often we don't prize the good news is because we haven't felt the weight of the bad news. Paul spends half of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and half of chapter 3 saying, we are drowning in sin left to ourselves. Whether it's someone who is in a homosexual lifestyle or someone who's just disobedient and rebellious to their parents, whether it's someone trapped in pride, whether it's chapter 2, someone trapped in a religious self-righteousness like a Pharisaic Jew in chapter 2, whatever you are, whatever your upbringing, maybe you've never even thought about homosexual practice, it's never been a slight temptation to you in your life, doesn't matter. All of us are sinners under the judgment of God that is looming and coming left to ourselves. And that's why Paul says, I need to preach the gospel in Rome. And and one more time, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So anybody mentioned in the sins of chapters 1, 2, and 3, which is all of us, right? We're all guilty in these chapters. Any of us, all of us who turn from sin and trust in Christ can be forgiven, washed, saved, renewed, restored, redeemed, adopted into God's family. It does not matter the past that we have lived. Here's the thing. We want to affirm that with all of our hearts. The danger, like Jerry is saying, is people who want to cut the Bible into pieces and edit it and change it and change the meaning so that we take one of these sins that will lead to hell and all these sins, unrepentant, will lead to hell, all of them. And we want to try to take some of these sins and say they're not actually sins, which is the most unloving thing a Christian can ever do in the name of God. If you look at your friend with same-sex struggles and you say to them, I love you and I want you to be happy and you seem so happy in that relationship and I know God just wants you to be happy and God loves you and you change the definition of love where it's no longer informed by the commands of Scripture, it's now informed by the intuitions and emotions of our moment in this culture. If you do that, you are hating your friend 
And I know it seems backwards because you think if you say that what they're doing is wrong, you're hating them. That's what you'll be. You'll be called a bigot. You'll be called full of hate. You'll be called all these different names. But ironically, it is a Christian with tears in their eyes who is confronting that lifestyle, who is loving that person, that individual. And it's the, it's the Christian, I mean, I won't say the name. There's a church with the name Baptist in it in Athens who, like, what, a month ago just came out affirming same-sex relationships, okay, in Athens. And uh, we actually know one of the, the pastor who preached the sermon on that. I actually know this person a little bit. And, and th- they put the statement on the website. Here it was. They preached on the Ethiopian eunuch, and they said, this clearly shows that God is in favor of same-sex relationships. Like, I preached on the Ethiopian eunuch a couple months ago, and I didn't come to the same conclusion in my, in my understanding of the text. But here's my point. That church is going to be known by Athens as the loving, accepting church. I'm just telling you, that is a form of hatred, what they are saying. It's a lie. They are lying to the world saying that if you pursue this sin without repentance, God will accept you in the end, and that you could be saved without repenting of it. That is, the wor- that is the most intense form of hatred you could possibly show towards someone if you actually believe that God will judge all sin in the end. It's unrepentant of. But if we have repentance and turning, anybody can be forgiven. So although we will be labeled one thing, it will not actually be true if we say it with a heart that's genuinely broken and full of love. Yeah, and let's close on 32, though. They know God's righteous decree, and those who practice such things deserve to die. So they know it. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You can look in our world and say, right now, and you talk about homosexuals, but, but, but all of us in, those, in that list of sins or of vices, we, we want others to approve of it. And, that, and we see that all over in our world right now. And that's why we need to stand firm and to plead with the unbeliever to say, the wrath of God is coming. God will give us up, give you up um, to your sin. You need a Savior. And 16 and 17 is beautiful, Mark. Thank you for taking us to that. Can you pray for us, Jim? Yeah. Father, we want to thank you um, for your word, for the truths of your word. Um, we want to thank you for how clear it truly is. Uh, Father, I know how many times I have not, um, I have been um, worried about what man thinks rather than um, truly concerned about uh, your approval. And so, Father, we pray that we would be bold with the gospel, we would be loving with the gospel, and that we would love others well by sharing this great news that um, anyone can repent from the sin that uh, easily plagues them instead put their hope in Christ. And Father, uh, I pray that if anyone is uh, listening or uh, even in this room that is yet to know the Savior, I pray that right now they would put their hope in Christ to um, flee from your, from your wrath and instead to your Son who took uh, your wrath, who was a propitiation, for our sins. And, and Father, we are so grateful that the Lord Jesus would take uh, that, what we truly deserve, and endure that on the cross, and then give us your righteousness. Um, Father, we're um, so grateful for that. So forgive us when we have um, exchanged uh, your truth for lies um, and serve the creation rather than the creator. And we commit this to you and pray that uh, you would give us opportunities and boldness to uh, rightly proclaim your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Well, just real quick, next week, we, we still do have a number of things to talk about on this topic. I hope you will come back. We want to talk about sometimes how, I want to deal with some counter arguments people will use, uh, like we mentioned in Romans 1. I want to talk about how to handle books like Leviticus uh, in this whole discussion, because you know, people will say, you know, Leviticus also condemns eating shrimp and pork. So how can you, you know, it just sounds like you're picking and choosing your morality in Leviticus, which is a, a pretty standard response. So we're going to look at a number of things like that. Then we're going to get into some of the common objections and questions that come up in Christian circles that we have not addressed yet. One of them is Jesus never talks about this. We already talked about that. But there's a, there's a number of questions that come up frequently. And so we want to look at more of a, from a pastoral perspective, how to deal with and navigate uh, some difficult uh, di- sort of common struggles in, in this whole thing. So thank you guys very much.